magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host, Warwick Schiller. And you know, the universe works in strange ways, but I get people send me suggestions for podcast guests and I'll, I'll look them up and, you know, sometimes I'm like, i got to have them on or sometimes I'm like, yeah, they're pretty cool. I, hopefully I run into them one day or hopefully an opportunity to um, interact with that person comes along at some point in time. And I've heard a number of people suggest a young fella from uh, the UK named Ben Atkinson and Ben, someone suggested Ben and so I looked him up and I saw videos of him doing Liberty with like seven horses and then Roman riding while jumping with uh, two or three horses on either side, loose on either side of the horses that he's jumping while Roman riding. And then I saw some high school dressage stuff and then I saw some in-hand stuff like they do at the Spanish riding school. And I thought, well, that that dude's pretty cool and... uh, I'm thinking, yeah, if I get, I, I don't have a direct link with him, but if I, I get a chance one day to uh, connect with him, I wouldn't mind chatting with him on the podcast. And so recently I was, um, I presented, not presented, but I put a video into a uh, an online, oh, what would you call it, online horse expo in the UK recently called the Horseman Showcase. And they had a, they had a, um, like a Liberty competition or something or other and they asked me to be a an online judge for it and I had to get on this zoom call to, to do this judging thing which I didn't know a whole lot about and I get on the zoom call and there's two other guest judges on there and one is Tick Maynard who is a as you probably know was a previous guest on the podcast and then the other guy is this Ben Atkinson so he's my in and I'm like you know and I get chatting with him and I said hey yeah uh, how would you I don't know if I asked him to be on the podcast first. I think he actually said, hey, I've listened to every episode of the podcast. I love it. It's awesome. I love what you're doing. And so I thought, well, hey, would you like to be on my podcast? And he said, yes. So that was my in with Ben Atkinson. Um, An amazing young man. He's only 28 and he's done a lot of stuff. And I really love his outlook on horses and life in general. So here is my interview with Ben Atkinson, and I'm sure you'll love it uh, just as much as I do. Ben Atkinson, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a treat to be on it and not listening to it for a, for a change. Yeah, we, this is actually round two. We tried round one uh, a few days ago, and uh, for some reason, you ended up in the same spinning wheel of death <laughs> that uh, Rupert Isaacson ended up in. So maybe there's some, um, maybe some of there's that shamanic energy coming out of you. <laughs> uh, so we met, we met uh, the other day on there was a there was a uh, online horse mm, expo-y thing called the Horseman Showcase, and I got asked to. Um, to do some video for that earlier this year and then recent and that that came out recently but they had a they had a um some sort of a competition on there for like a liberty type competition and they asked me to to be a judge on it and uh so i get on there to be a judge on it the other day and tick maynard who's a previous podcast guest was on there and then 
you were on there and that was that's the first time i met you it was so cool because i'd had a lot of people send me stuff and say hey you should have this guy on the podcast and i think that's actually where i first maybe that's no i think i'd seen some of your stuff floating around the the social media thing but then when people started sending me hey you should get this guy on the podcast i kind of looked up and i thought yeah he'd be cool and then i just forgot about it and then of course you popped up right there in front of me on the screen and then told me that you were a avid podcast listener and you want to be on it so here we are <laughs> no it's it's great fun i think you actually the first time i reckon that you saw me would have been i can't remember which of the podcasts it was but i stole a quote from you and tagged you in it i, I still adore it now if you're depressed you're living in the past if you're anxious you're living in the future if you're at peace you're living in the present it was and, too that's yeah. right you tagged me in it that's right and then you were doing some sort of crazy liberty roman riding with about 27 <laughs> horses or something or other i'm like holy cow this dude just and that's not my <laughs> quote that's that's from a chinese philosopher named lao Tzu who lived about 800 bc but anyway i'll, I'll take it you'll take it um, yeah, so the other the other thing i have to do and I, I i do need to thank you for this is that if when people come to me and they say i have no idea where to start with horsemanship and i'm like right you want to go on the journey on podcast on spotify and you got to find the the 12 rules of training and listen to that as like, if you listen to that that's as good a start as you could ever have in a to being a horseman oh thank you yeah the principles of training yeah that you know that came about just you know i think because you know we've we we did a podcast other day that didn't work so i know a bit more yeah. about you than i did when we first got on there but i think my brain works a bit like yours too like i'm a i'm an analyzer and you know, I, that's, that's what made me, that, uh, the whole principles of training, you know, like doing clinics and helping people and then watching, you know, watching other people at horse expos and reading books and watching videos and all sorts of stuff. I just started to categorize things into, oh, well, that, that particular exercise is the same as that exercise, only different, but it's got the same principle. And I, I just, you know, I just categorized stuff in my head for years. And then I finally started putting names to it, like at clinics. And then I finally got to where, you know what, I cannot find any more principles, anything that falls outside that or that. I like that, you know. So, yeah, thanks for that. That's pretty cool. But <laughs> let's talk about Ben Atkinson. So <laughs> what is it exactly, for the listeners out there, what exactly do you do these days? So we've got a company called the Atkinson Action Horses because it's a collaboration with the whole family. And we provide horses for film, television, and live events. So this could be anything from, you know, like a display, you'd see a jumping competition or a rodeo or all the way to if you're watching, you know, like those period dramas, Poldark, Peaky Blinders, you know, all those old fashioned things or TV commercials, anything like that, which means that the job's very varied, not only for us, for the, but also for the horses. And it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's great fun. And you guys provide horses for those. Do you, but, uh, so your email is Mark. Atkinson stunt horses. Um, yeah. So Mark's your dad. Yeah, and yeah, Mark's my dad. Okay, and so do you guys do stunts too? So we do stunts with horses. So there's a thing called the stunt register, which basically it's a it's a test that you do where you show that you're almost. If I describe it as being like the black belt in five or six different disciplines, you know, such as high diving, scuba diving. Um, gymnastics horse riding cars that sort of thing and it means that basically you're, you're now shown to be skilled and proficient enough for someone to ensure you to blow yourself up in a car on a film set now we are not on the stunt register 
Because the thing is, when we specialize in horse work, the director will send me a script. I got sent one yesterday and I've got to have a horse in a First World War battlefield laying in the floor in the mud. And these three riders gallop up and they feel sorry for him. So they've got to jump off and save him. And there's gas canisters falling and all sorts. Now, it sounds, firstly, you've got the stuff going off. So you're going to need a stuntman. It can't be an actor. It's going to be dangerous. Now, he could be the best stuntman in the world, but he's not going to know diddly squat about how to keep a horse laying down and keep it calm while there's fake smoke and explosions going off. So that's when we'll get jumped in for the stunt doubling. And equally, sometimes an actor. So when an actor comes to us for a, a film, the first thing we do is assess them. And then we say to the film, OK, this actor can walk or this actor can walk, trot and canter, that sort of thing. And if an actor is, say, only able to walk because they've not had any lessons, really, then the director says, and at the end of this scene, he gallops off because he's furious. Then one of us will jump on and do the do the faster work. So sometimes it's very simple things like that. Um, other times it can be, like you say, your cool stuff, galloping up to the edge of a cliff, skid stopping a horse as a helicopter flies in front of you to get a cool shot, you know, all that, all that jazz. So have, so can you name drop here? Have, have you, have you like that, uh, done stunt work on something I may have seen? Oh my goodness. Uh, we've did some sort of what I would call crowd stunt work on, uh, Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans or the remakes they just did of them. I my first job I did actually after I left school was I rode on the Steven Spielberg film War Horse. We were doing a lot on that. And then mainly for us, say period dramas, Pole Dark, Victoria, Peaky Blinders, or Creatures Great and Small, all that more. Okay, more sort of so thing. I'm a huge Peaky Blinders fan and a huge <laughs> Pole Dark fan. My wife didn't watch Peaky Blinders, but we watched Pole Dark religiously. Were you on that? Yeah, so I was Aiden's double for the first two years. And now really? I'll tell you a fantastic thing about me and Aiden really, really get on. Um, I've not, obviously, we don't film that anymore, so I've not spoken to him for ages. So I'm not going to claim that we're best mates, but we got on really well at the time. And Aiden will forever have a special place in my heart as like, this is what actors should be like. So he, he turned up on the farm on his assessment day. He walked straight up to me and my dad and said, right, I'll tell you straight. The film's told you I can ride because I told you them I can't. I've never sat on a horse in my life. Uh, I'm willing to put the work in, but I want to do as much of my own riding as possible. So we were like, brilliant, easy. So he actually made an effort the last sort of six to eight weeks before Poldark started. He had all his, like, you know, your dress rehearsals, your script, all of that. But he made sure that he came from London to our home in New Yorkshire, which is about four hours uh, in a car, to train every weekend, just keeping on it. And so for the first two seasons, we were doubling for him. But by the the rest of the seasons on from that, he did all of his own riding. He was actually a really, a very uh, sympathetic rider to the horses and very good at, for example, if we were doing a, a scene where he had to gallop along the beach after two or three times, he would off his own back, go to the director and be say, hey, this horse has galloped a lot now. We're, we're taking it easy on him after this. Well, that's good to hear because I, yeah. I thought he was a pretty cool dude. And, and yeah, I, I remember watching him thinking, this guy can ride all right. Because there's, you yeah. know, there's, there's not scenes of him just galloping awake or it could be someone else. There's scenes of him galloping towards the camera and stuff. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had the, the horse we had for him, Seamus, he was great. He was a big Irish draft. And he was, well, uh, before I move on, I'm going to sort of tag in that. With the films, it's not just about, say, like, you know, like I've just said, teaching a horse to lie down while there's smoke machines and stuff. It goes on beyond that. So Aidan Turner was playing Captain Poldark in 1750 in England. Now, 
we pride ourselves on pairing the correct horse for the job. So you'll see a lot of film companies, they like Andalusians and they like Frisians because there's big necks and there's big hair and it looks great. But for a gentleman who isn't very rich in England to be riding an Andalusian in 1750, I mean, it's not happening. It'd be the equivalent of importing a Ferrari. And right. so we chose him an Irish draft thinking, you know, this means this is a horse he could work in the land. You actually see him driving this horse as well throughout the series. and so. That was all chosen. And then going on to picking the tack for the horse, uh, military tack and bridles and saddles, things that could have been scavenged from the American War of Independence battlefields, which is where the character is meant to have come home from. So that's all part of our job as well, making sure that the film chooses the correct horses, tack, all of that sort of thing to be historically correct, but also practical. Well, thank you, because... Horse, horse movies drive me nuts when they've got the, you know, they've got stuff on the horses that wasn't even invented yet. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you have to because sometimes they'll want something doing uh, exceptionally dangerous. So, you know, if you're doing dangerous carriage work, I'm, I'm, I love to be historically correct as much as the next man, but I'm not going to use traces running from the collar to the carriage with a hook that go through the eye of the leather. I'm going to have me some nice synthetic quick release just in case anything. Anything goes pear-shaped. Yeah, sounds great. Hey, what about Peaky Blinders? Did you do stuff on Peaky Blinders? Yeah, so we did Peaky Blinders seasons three and four. So we had great fun on that. What was really lovely with that is uh, Killian Murphy, who plays the lead in Peaky's, just such an easygoing guy, listened to absolutely everything that, uh, that you wanted him to do. But one of the guys who was a little bit more difficult, I've, I'm sorry, ashamed to say I don't know the guy's name, but he plays Arthur Shelby. Mm-hmm. And Arthur. He, uh, yeah, well, he's a little bit of a method actor. Do you know what I mean? So he takes the the role, but he's kind of in that all day. You break for lunch, he's still Arthur Shelby. And so he got on this horse. Now, the man's barely ridden. And we had, it was the scene, do you know, when they go deer hunting. So they're all mounted and they're uh, all yeah. out on the moors. And we're trying to give him little bits of help to make sure he doesn't go too wrong. And he's like, I know how to ride up. No, and did it. Like, yeah, the character does. You don't. Um, and so that's where my dad. So my, when we're filming, normally it's my father. He he's got the role as, and I think it's the coolest job title you'll find in the equine industry. When you're in charge of horses on a film set, your job is the horse master. That's what your job is. And it's not only making sure everything goes well. When you get an actor like that, who's like, I can ride. <laughs> My dad walked up to the director and was like, I think you should get this shot in three takes. Because by the time these guys have run, pulled the horses around playing who's the best rider, these horses are going to start to say, hang on, we know the job. We're going a different way. So it's, it's, it's all of that. It's balancing all of these, all the characters. Wow. Yeah, I can see that guy you know, almost having to be a method actor to, to be Arthur Get Shelby because he was full on, wasn't he? Like that guy was. Yeah. Oh, terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a uh, psychopathic sort of <laughs> thing. And the, and, uh, you know, the, the guy that played Tommy Shelby, when you mentioned him a minute ago, and you said he was like, he would listen to everything you say. I can just imagine that guy looking you in the eye, listening to what you're saying. Because his yeah. face was so expressive. Like he could say, he could say a lot without saying anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's very, he's got one of those looks when someone looks at you and it looks through you. Oh, yeah. It's very, very he's, blessed. 
Those, and just, those... But so wonderful. Do you know, just one of the easiest people, one, one of the most lovely jobs in all the ways. In fact, one of my favorite Poldark stories that I have is when Tommy marries Grace and they're rushing from the church in the storm in the carriage. You mean, yeah, have... you said Poldark, you mean? Oh, Peaky's. Peaky Blinders, sorry. sorry. I yep. mean Peaky's. Uh, they had this, because they're meant to be in the storm in this carriage, they had a giant wind machine, which basically just imagine like the spinning propeller off an aeroplane just attached to this thing. And they had that on the back of a pickup and two guys either side, and they're throwing buckets of water and leaves into the wind machine as we drive this horse behind it so it looks like it's all happening. Well, of course, it's not very safe to have the actors doing that, but they didn't have a stunt woman there. And they were like, but we need someone to double grace. My father's quite a small, slight guy. And so when Tommy and Grace are in the carriage on the way to the church in the storm, Mark Atkinson in a purple dress is Grace, which is his claim to fame. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, I love I love that show. You know, there was a line in that show. Um, you know, you, you said a minute ago that our first interaction apparently was when you shared something that I said, and it was, if you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you are present, or if you are, if you are peaceful, you're living in the present. There is a line late in the series, that Peaky Blinders series, where Tommy Shelby has retired. Well, he's, he, you know, he's not working. He's at home. And he's yeah. driving, he's going crazy being at home. And someone, he said he's going back to work. And I think it was his wife, maybe his mother. I can't remember. Someone says, why? And he says, because I'm sick of sitting here thinking about me, thinking about my thinking. Yeah, <laughs> I get that. I, was, I love that line. I'm sitting here. I'm sick of me thinking about me, thinking about my thinking. Like that's been in your head, isn't it? You know, I love that yeah. line. I love that line. Anyway, so, wow, we just jumped right in there to Paul Dark and Peaky Blinders. When you said that at the start, I thought, well, that's that's cool. I've seen both of those. Um, let's go back to the start of this. Where did the, how did you get, well, maybe we should go back even further. How did your dad get into being a, a horse stunt guy? Like, it's not, it's one of those, you know, it's one of those vocations that you don't just go, yeah, I'm going to be a horse stunt guy. How did he get into it? Yeah, it's definitely a I fell into it job opposed to, a, you know, you're not going to see it in the newspaper. Right. So we had we were dairy farmers and farmers. So as myself, my father and my grandfather, who's 93, all on the same farm working away. And my father was working as a dairy farmer and an arable land farmer, but he'd always been a show jumper. So him and my grandfather had always bred horses. So my grandfather let, dropped out of school when he was 10 to plow with horses on the land so that's where the sort of massive horse passion comes from and he'd always been pretty handy with them and good with the horses so because we didn't have a lot of money my grandfather and father would breed show jumpers and bring them on and sell them and keep their best ones to try and get going and so when people saw my father having success with his horses they would say oh could you take my horse in for training for two weeks or could you back my youngster or teach my daughter and so eventually because as much as my grandfather, I would say, is probably the only real farmer out of the lot of us because he loves, you know, he'll, he'll pull up the car on a journey and say, look how straight those furrows in that plowed field are. Like, I, I'm not feeling it at all. And so my father had kept running the farm as a proper farm because my grandfather had worked so hard to build it up to that. 
But my mother, who is completely disengaged from all of farming, she's a town girl. First time she came to the yard, apparently she came in a, a floor length white fur coat and stiletto heels. Um, it gives you an idea. Um, she helped my dad with his horses once as a surprise and she filled the hay nets with straw and put haylage down in the beds. So she said to him, look, if you don't, if you don't want to do cows, let's sell them and do horses. And so he took the brave leap and started this riding school and trekking center. And then some people that were coming for lessons who did uh, historical battle reenactments said, would we, could we hire the riding school horses that we have lessons on because we like them to come and be in a battle at this event? So, of course, as was the uh, mantra, as you could say, of the Atkinson family at the start of this business, it was say yes and figure it out later. So he said, of course, you can hire the horses for this for this event. And thus the great training began. So my dad's got a 410 and a 12 bore. So they were shooting them in the fields while they were working the horses to get them used to the gunfire. They made bonfires to get them used to smoke. They put plastic over the top of old milk churns to make drums, used the silage wrap off the bales to make flags. And by the end of it, you know, these these horses were they're pretty, you know, they were battle ready, if you like. So they went away and they they did the job. Um, yeah, actually, there is a little, I'll just tag this on. There's a sm small funny story in that. My dad was asked if he would like to ride in the battle. And of course he said, yeah, this is great, great fun. And he figured out pretty quickly that when you're riding along, you've got your sword. And if, if you tap someone on the shoulder, then you've got them and it means they're dead. Well, he noticed quite quickly that as much work he'd done with the horses, the horses were fine with the muskets and they were fine with the cannons. But one thing that they were actually really struggling was with the drums. And we don't know why, but just that. I have a theory that drums and applause have spook horses because of the percussion. Mm, you yep. feel it. And so he nearly got himself lynched in the beer tent later that day because he cantered round, broke rank away from the rest of the troop and killed everyone with a drum on both sides. <laughs> so that they wouldn't off-put his horses. So anyway, so we've done this event. It's gone well. Dad's been had his head kicked in in the beer tent. It's been great. And someone said, could you, could we hire those horses to do exactly the same thing, but for a TV, like for a film, for a, on a TV in a museum? And the rest is, I don't know, the rest is history. You just pick things up as you go along and you snowball along. Our mantra being, you're only ever as good as your last job. It's no good saying to someone, oh, but in 2003, I did, like, it, it's nice for you, but realistically, it's the last job. And so we just, prep the horses as best we could, turned up, turn up early, leave late, smile in between. And the rest, yeah, the rest is history. So that's the stunt part of it, but there's so much more to what you do. So, you know, when I first, when you, when you uh, tagged me in that, that thing on Facebook and you showed up there, you were doing, I don't know, maybe Liberty with a large group of horses or maybe Roman riding <laughs> two while having some others lose their so but since i've looked into who the hell ben atkinson is you know so i i see you do a lot of liberty stuff roman riding stuff but then i see you do like um high school dressage stuff and then i see you do like the in-hand stuff like they're doing the spanish riding school i mean you it's almost like those things you can take a lifetime to learn each one of those, you've got all these skills, plus you do the stunt stuff, <laughs> and you're what, 28? 28. Wow. How did, 
how did all that happen? I mean, how'd you get into, yeah, where, let's talk about your start. How'd you get into it? Oh my, well, riding and riding and driving horses is something I've done for as long as I can remember. My dad still stands by that I'm the only child he ever knew that had a Shetland pony that was fully clipped out and shod all round because I used to just canter around everywhere on her. Um, we've just, in the beginning, I followed my father's footsteps. So I, I grew up around horses. My grandfather taught me how to drive. Dad taught me how to ride. And I followed his footsteps into competitive show jumping and competitive, like, I think you guys call it hunter showing. Yep. Um, in the tweed and stuff. And what but do you guys call it? I liked just showing. Okay. Yep. Um, so we, I, I liked that and I did that, but I was getting, I would get very bored because my horse world was very linear and very competitive, but my dad's horse world and everything that he did was very varied and very wonderful. And so I came across the, the Spanish side of things probably first, because when I was very young on all the film sets, they always import Spanish trainers to train horses to rear and lay down. And, and I was always around them, which was, which was fantastic. And so you sort of, the the seed is planted for it to germinate later in life and not only planted in the way that it gives you interest, but also shows you that it's possible. I think seeing that something is possible with horses is such a big thing because you, if you can't break the barrier in your brain, you're never going to do it for the horse as well. So we're going on with that. Uh, we're going filming with that. I'm exposed to this world. And along that road, I got to see Lorenzo. Lorenzo's the French guy you see with all the white horses. The big distinction is Lorenzo's the one that stands on them. Jean-Francois is the one who's on the floor with them. That's how you generally tell them apart. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and of course, Lorenzo's standing on these two horses as he gallops around. I'm about eight or nine years old at this point, And I have two white show jumping ponies at home. So the child's logic is that he is standing on white horses. I have white horses. The key ingredient is white horses. All I have to do is do it. And they were absolute saints. My poor parents had the shock of their life as they came out and I stood on them galloping round. And for a long time, I was hammering on to my dad saying, this is what I want to do. I want to perform. So my ponies got taken to an event because we were actually doing some Roman chariot racing on a, um, with a historical chariot. So they're on a yoke. Do you know how you'd see cattle driven? Yep. Yep. Because that's how they used to have it. So we had my ponies there because they, Romans only had horses between about 11 hands and 13 hands. And because they were there on an evening, my dad let me ride round the beer tent where everyone was having a party standing on my two horses. And the officials loved how much people loved it. A drunk crowd's always an easy one to please. But they said, yeah, fantastic. So we have an empty gap where we've got to get one set of reenactors out of the arena and a, another set in. And if you, go, if you want to go in with your ponies there and canter around, you do it. Now, in my mind, it was the best performance I've ever done in my life. Looking back at pictures, I want to slap myself and give myself a load of technique tips, but we'll just we'll look past that. And what it actually led to is English Heritage, who was the company that were, we were working for there. They run all you know the castles and stuff in, in, in this country, we keep yeah. it alive for people. And so they said, actually, we really like this. We've got a proposition for you. There's myself and another guy who I trained with called Zachary Roberts. And they said, we'll pay for you two guys to learn how to trick ride like Cossacks if you do us two years of free shows. To me, it was a it was a bargain. And so that's what we did. So then I was introduced to the wonder and chaos of Guido Louis, who was my my master, if you like, if I was his apprentice. I worked with him solely for two years and then did another two years working with him on different projects. And he is 
the most phenomenal man in every word where you can think of it. I mean, he he cooks like a Michelin star chef. He's a salsa dancing instructor. He's done every job in circus you could imagine, different acrobatic acts and all sorts. But he ran away with Cossacks when he was 14 years old and so was trained in the in the traditional methods. Now, this is something that was fantastic for me in my learning, but made it very hard because, for example, if you're trick riding, you have very pointed toes. It's all about keeping your you clench your butt cheeks, clench your thighs, lock the knees, lock out the, the hands so everything's pointed. Because you imagine if you try and move a bent limb, it moves like a piece of rope because there's too many bendy bits. Whereas if you're moving a straight limb, it's like moving an iron bar so you can move it a lot more safely and efficiently. So if my toes came up when he was riding around, you get a crack on the top of the foot to point the toes. Or if you slouch, the whip would crack underneath your chin so you'd sit up. He was very, you know, very, very strict. But he taught me a lot of lessons in life, not only about business and about horses and trick riding, but also just being a man. I remember the first time I'm sat chatting back at him in the way that only a 14 year old can do when you're entitled and know everything. And he grabs me by the scruff of my neck and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not your friend and I'm not your dad. You're like, if you carry on speaking to me this way, you're going to get a you're going to get a fist in the chops. So it was a rude awakening for me. But I tell you what, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened because suddenly you realize, oh, life doesn't work in the same way that when you're with a child. You know, I mean, I'm the most spoiled child in the world by both my parents, whether they admit it or not. And so I think having someone like that just to say, oh, this is how the world works was very, very good for me. So you started working with him when you were 14? Yeah. <clears throat> and you did that for two years? Yeah. And weren't you telling me the other day that he, he like, as far as Cossacks go, there's different titles and he's like the, the whoop de Yeah, so, so traditionally in circus, uh, a Cossack is called a uh, zhigit. So what we call trick riding in Russian is known as zhigatovka, which honestly, we should keep that word. It sounds much better. It's doesn't a very it? cool word. But zhigit is the word for a trick rider. And he was known as a, a super zhigit because generally a trick rider will do tricks split into one of the quadrants. So there are balancing tricks. So they would be, for example, like a handstand or shoulder stand or standing on the saddle, hanging tricks. So we would call them wings. You guys. I think would call them fender hangs and stuff like that, where you're wrapping the stirrup leather around your leg so that you can hang off the side of the horse. Then you've got your vaulting tricks, basically anything where you're going from seated, feet touch the floor, bounce, you could land on the neck facing backwards or go from side to side on the horse. And then the ultimate in tricks, which is the climbing tricks. And the climbing tricks, there are only two. And one is to go under the neck of the galloping horse, up the other side and back into the saddle. And one is to do under the belly. Now, when I met Guido, he was the only man in the United Kingdom who could perform under the belly. And since then, I took his, no, he still does it. But then that was the, that was the pinnacle of their career with him. He taught me how to ride under the belly. So that was. You, you've done that. Yeah, yeah. I can, I'll send you a WhatsApp video. and we're, Oh, we're done. please do. Wow. I've seen that. I've seen video that I'm like, he's not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And he's, cause the first time I saw it, I had no idea what the guy was doing and he goes down one side and I'm thinking he's going to hang underneath it. This is crazy. Oh, hang on. He's not. Oh my goodness. He came up the other side. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think one of the, the hardest things with under the belly isn't actually the trick. So if you've got good grip strength, 
and not to be crude, but if you've got the balls mm-hmm. to do it, the the hard part's finding the right horse. Because horses will do one of two things. 80% of horses, when you actually drop underneath them, will stop dead. They just stop. They're just like, what on earth? Because you're actually, when you're underneath, the horse's elbow at the top of his front legs is rocking you backwards with every stride. They have to push against you. You can feel the cannon bone coming flat against your back. And sometimes the back feet chip in. So... There's a lot for the horse to keep moving with. The other 20% of horses will clear off into the next county. Um, and they're the ones you want to stay away from. So that was a lot more about what he was teaching me with it. And just being about swift and and without conscious thought. So that's another thing that Guido probably taught me. It ties nicely into the under the belly sort of conversation is this idea of flow state being able to do things without conscious thought so if we a great example that i always love that i think feels like it helps people understand it if they've never felt it themselves is during when england had her big empire when she was using you know red coats with muskets and things one of the reasons we did so well is that they drilled the soldiers so fast that you just had that rip spit ram fire shoot into the musket, loading the musket, mechanical, again, 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 so that when you were on the battlefield and you've got cannons going off and people getting shot, you can just zone out and your body doesn't need telling how to how to load that musket. And it was the same for the trick riding. So you might think trick riding is very dangerous, but it's only dangerous if something goes wrong. And go, by goes wrong, I mean a horse spooks or a piece of tack breaks. Because by the time you get to the point that you're doing the trick, like under the belly, on a straight line at the gallop, you can't use your brain. Because you start kneeling on the saddle, looking down the near side or left-hand side of the horse, and all you can see is the front legs coming up and the back legs coming in. And if you were thinking, you'd never go, yeah. I'm going to stick my head in there. This is going to be great, like great day for me. You just have to reach that to breathe, keep breathing, deep breaths, calm and go. There's no thought at that point. You just, you've trained the body. Now you go. And that's again where I was introduced into one of my favorite sayings of all time, which I think applies to all horsemanship, if not all of life, which is you, you do not rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. I've I've heard that one. I mean, I I use that one a lot, and I I've heard that was um, from the Navy SEALs, but it may be from somewhere else too. But yeah, love that one. I, I I tell people that one all the time that you don't you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your preparation or your training. Yeah. And what another thing I find that's really interesting is how many crossovers you get between all the disciplines. So when I had it hammered into me by Guido learning to trick ride, he would say, you know, breathe, always breathe. He'd have me doing exercises off the ground, push-ups, pull-ups, sprints, and get me breathing, concentrating on breathing in those times. To be like, if you can't breathe, there's no oxygen. Without oxygen, you go tense, your brain stops working. Later on in my life, when I was in Madrid having classical dressage lessons, I'd been on holiday there for two weeks learning and I, I just couldn't, like, I felt like I couldn't get enough knowledge into me throughout this time. And so, you, you know, you're, you know, you're leaving and I turned to my coach out there, this guy called Luis Miguel, 
And I said, what could, if I have one piece of advice, you've got one more thing to tell me, what would it be to help someone be a better dressage rider? And he said, breathe. Everyone forgets to breathe. Because if you, you could ride better just by forgetting about the riding and just think in and out, in and out. And then again, when I had, when I was lucky enough to have one of the two lessons that I had with Frederick Pignon, all came back to it again. He took me to the side. He's like, you need to learn. You need to do yoga. You need to do yoga because you need to learn how to breathe. And I find it interesting that across all, whether you're going to stand on a horse, ask for Piaf, or work with one at Liberty, it all circles back to the breath. What's... Uh... What's what was what was uh, so you went out to like a Frederick clinic, Frederick Pignon clinic, did you? Is that what you did? Yeah, so I did. I've done two clinics with Frederick Pignon. What, they were both absolutely fantastic. What was the first thing you did at Fred's clinic? Mm. So Frederick runs his clinics in a way that they're always over two days, and on the first day he says to you, "What." You know, he asks you what you do and what you what you think, which looking back on it now, now that I've done clinics and things, what you think as the customer you're going to get from this clinic could not be further from the truth about what you will be learning. And so he asked me what I did. And I actually had taken my best horse, Malik, and I was saying, I've got this horse and I can do everything with it. But it still runs off. Or like he's doing it for me, but he's like in the same way that you could see someone pushing a pram to try and get a baby to sleep, but they're talking to someone else. The horse is like, yeah, I'm doing it. Just go off. And so then Frederick said, okay, you go in the round pen, you work the horse. And I'm at this clinic. I'm much younger than I am now. Thank God, because I'd cringe if I was still the person then who I am now. And I take this as, this is my time to shine. So because everyone else has gone in, they've done a bit of line work, a bit of this. I'm like, Whoa! I enter that round pen. I'm on my horse, bareback and bridleless, galloping it round, skid stop, bow him, stand on his bum. I mean, you guys can't see because you're not a thing. I'm going bright red in front of Warwick, remembering it now. Um, you know, everything. I read it. I pf'd it. And I was like, look at all the stuff my horse can do. All probably within about four minutes. Like, you know, no, no feel, no timing, no brain. Just like, look at my, look at my dancing monkey, which is just horrific. Um, and so then what happens in the clinic next is Frederick works the horse and he, he watches you work the horse. So he's got your side of the story. Then he works the horse. So he's got the horse's side of the story and then he puts it all together. I have never had such a dressing down by anyone not even my grandmother in my life as I got from Frederick but like he was just like firstly well the first thing he did he did the old we call it you know like a, a crap sandwich good bad good yeah so he was like firstly the fact that you have at the age that you have I must have been about 20 at the time he was like the fact that you've sought me out and asked for help means that you're going to get a lot further than other horse trainers who think I'm fine. And then went on to go into great detail about how everything I did and how I got there was wrong. And basically, too much. Um, I'd become a floating whip 
no body language, no thought of foot position, no thought of eye contact or, or direction like that. Mm. I just had this little magic wand where I could go poke, 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 um, too erratic, not accounting and no empathy for energy, not reading the room too fast being able to brush things off. I would look at something and say the horse would, um, you know, he'd get distracted by another horse over there. And my instinct would be to yock him on the lead row opposed to be like, well, what are we looking at? Should right. I look as well? And then, you know, so he did me a lot. And then fair play to him. I owe him so much for this. Over that weekend, I was meant to get two lessons and he gave me four um, because he was like, there's so much to fix. And yeah, it was great. It was embarrassing. I cried in front of about 200 people in the arena and I got my dressing down and then said, thank you. <laughs> and went home and thought, oh, I've, I've gone wrong. And then what probably came one of the, the, I've had a few big moments in life where I've said, well, what are we going to do here? And there's the ego brain and the ego brain said, well, we're doing all right. Who says that if we carry on the way we are, it won't work. And then there was the logic brain that says, okay, we're going to have to start again. And the best, best, you know, what's the saying? The best day to plant a tree was 20 years ago. If not, do it today. Yep. Um, and so I actually, I was going from that clinic to a performance. And Frederick said to me, if you want this horse to be any good, you don't perform with it for six months. You go home, you only do what you do. And so I did. I changed my entire performances for the next six months. I took my horse out um, and went to work and and now it's it's paid off. And I, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And it's one of those things for me, which is, was proof of what I've always done. Because you know, even by then I was teaching people a bit. And you always give someone a lesson. Not always, some people are fantastic, but often you give someone a lesson, you say, here's the plan, here's what we're going to have to do. And they say, yes, and they leave and you go, they're not going to do any of that. Or they're going to do it once and then it's going to. And just very consciously did everything I could to work in the new method. You know, he took my whips away from me, work the horses without the whips, just with your body, work them in the round pen, working on simple mirroring and all those sorts of things. And in the beginning, I found it very hard. And so I would keep it to five, 10 minute sessions. You know, better to go in, do a bit good, and then leave, opposed to trying to get that that hours in the bank. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Junk hours. Yeah. And that's something that stuck with me through all of my training now. So if anyone ever books a lesson with me, they'll notice that on my website or on my paperwork and stuff, it always says it's this much money for the session, not per hour. Not per, you know, if you bring a horse to me with a problem or that we're trying to fix something or figure something out, if it takes two hours, it takes two hours. If it takes three, three. If it takes 20 minutes, it takes 20 minutes. We were working on what we're working on. And one of the best ways I got myself to fall into that habit, opposed to being distracted by the shiny, shiny, was at the start of the day on my phone, I write down all the names of the horses I'm going to work. And next to it, I write what we're going to do. And what we need to do, what the goal is. And then you can go in, achieve it, brilliant, finish. Not spoil good work with the bad things coming up. That must have been a pivotal moment, and I've had them before too, where what I found with with like with the Frederick moment thing, all of a sudden you're like, 
oh my goodness, everything I'm doing is wrong. And then, I don't know, for me, when I've had those moments, I kind of get stuck like, okay, I don't want to do what I was doing and I'm not sure how to do what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and I kind of, you know, I'm a bit of a freezer anyway, and I'd, I'd kind of get s- stuck in those spots. What was he, what's he like to be around? Like, does he have a, a vibe? Does he have an energy? Does he? The way my mum describes it is she says, I love sitting there, Frederick, because it just makes you feel like you smoked a joint. Mm, that's what she I was just, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> I mean, that's the best way to put it too. But yeah, that's what I was wondering. I'm, I you, figured he must have had that sort of energy. He's just got this. I mean, this is this was the moment I realized that he was the man. I think a, a big flaw of mine is that I will happily be the disciple to someone, but they've got to prove to me that they are worthy of the general. You've got to show me that you know what you're doing. Well, I'd taken this horse to the clinic and he was going, he was a great horse. He would do stuff, but he would bite and he was colty and all the time screaming for other horses. So I've worked the horse and Frederick walks in and I offer him the whip and he's like, no, 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 no. He joins up with the horse. It comes into the center, but it's still screaming and looking everywhere. He puts one hand on its chest in between the front legs. One hand on its withers. Now the horse is still screaming and looking. And then he seems to push on the horse, breathe in, and then lets go as he breathes out. And it was like someone just went and sleep. Really? And this horse, he's, I mean, this horse, he's, he's, he'd just been gelded. So he was still very like, what's this? What's that? And, you know, all over and then just boom, bottom lip, ears sideways, head down. And I was like, whatever you've got, whatever, I need it. I mean, you can tell me, you know, you tell me whatever you, I've got to do. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm in. And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is why I asked so many questions about Frederick Pinion. Because <laughs> I knew there had to be, there had to be something like that there. Because it's, it's, it's beyond, it's beyond technique. Yeah. Way beyond technique, it's 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 in the it's in the person, and that's where it be, that's where I think you know that's where the horses are taking me. But you know that's where it becomes a you get to a certain point to where to get more out of your horses, it's not more stuff you change about what you do with the horses. You change more about who you are, you know how you show up in the yeah. world, sort of thing. Remember years ago, I I. There was a young guy who he's a, you know, bit of an influencer, whatever. <clears throat> um, his name is Jake Ducey. I don't know if you ever heard of Jake Ducey. He's, you know, he's only probably in his 20s, but he'd written a book and, uh, you know, like some sort of a self-helpy sort of a book. But he, he was putting out these little videos on YouTube and one of them, he, he was talking about, <clears throat> he's talking about manifesting and he said, you don't get what you want. You get who you are. And I had to think about it for a bit. And it's like, you don't get what you want. You don't, you get who you are. So when you change who you are, you change the things around you. You know, it's quantum physics sort of stuff, but yeah, I I really, I'm so glad I got that out of it because that's, that's exactly what I thought might be going on with Frederick Pignon. No, definitely. And he actually, as far as I'm aware, and from what I've heard from other people, to the point that he can infuriate some of the people who hire him to do clinics, he pretty much outright, point blank, refuses to teach any technique. 
Really? He very rarely teaches any. He won't do much. You know, this is what you should do. This is he's like he'll give exercises, but the exercises will be based more around patterns, for example, than actually where to touch. Um, and I just found that when I first met him, I was like, well, bloody don't waste of money um, because I was a stupid child. But now I completely see it. You know, I, I see it because it doesn't. It doesn't matter how much technique you have if there's no feeling and feeling makes better technique in the same way, you know, no one could teach you when you're a young boy and you've never kissed a girl, no one could walk you through it. No one could tell you how, and this is how you need to make it good. And then you need to touch. But then when it happens and because you've got the emotion between two people and you feel it suddenly, it's amazing, but you couldn't have written it down. You couldn't have said, this is what I'm going to do. This is how she'll react or how I'll react. And that's the same with the horses. It can't, it's two living creatures coming into connection. How can you try and write a play by play about what's going to happen? Yeah. You know, for a while now, I've been telling people that the, 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 the right technique with the, with the wrong energy or the wrong, you know, mental outlook doesn't work. Yeah. You know, so it's more about, and for a while now I've been more on people working on their, you know, like their judgments of what's going on and their, you know, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, great conversation about Frederick. Let's get, <laughs> let's get back to Ben Atkinson. So, um, you've done quite a few movies. Have you ever done, have you, do you only work in the UK? Is it, is it where you only work with movies? Yeah. Well, no, we've done, um, we've done work all around the sort of world really mostly europe bits in dubai but i did a big film out in india a big bollywood film and yeah. it was the one of the most different things in the world if you might bollywood to work on feels like how a kids tv show might characterize hollywood so when you work in hollywood it's not actually anything like what you want Hollywood to be like. It's very boring. It's people stood around in the rain, drinking coffee under umbrellas, being very quiet. When you work on Bollywood, they've got the megaphone and people shouting and people carrying stereos with mood music on behind actors as they wander through set. You know, every, you just, all the craziness. Um, but going to India was, well, firstly, I would say I, I think anyone who's into spirituality or anyone who's looking for a, an eye opener in the world, I think India is a fantastic place to go. It's colorful, it's vibrant. And the, the, the variety in there of people, of situations, it's too much to take in. I, I was out there for months, but I still don't feel like I processed India completely until I'd been home for a while. So the first thing that hit me when I arrived was I had about two weeks of just feeling exceptionally guilty because I'm out there and foolishly, I hadn't even thought about this. Obviously, we all know if someone asked us, do you know there's poverty in India? You, you know, we know. But I was so young, I was so excited. I think it'll be about 19 or 20 when I went out to do this film in Bollywood. Um, and it hadn't crossed my mind how I was going to cope with seeing the level of poverty. I mean, driving 
driving from the airport to the five-star hotel I was going to be staying in, you feel like such a piece of crap for, you know, I'm out there working in luxury and there are homeless children 200 meters from my door. Uh, it, it very, and some people probably think that I wouldn't, you know, how can you compare what animals feel when there's people, children feeling like that out there? But some of the conditions the animals were kept in, the food, the tack. I mean, one of the first things I did when I was out there is I got my father to send me a big box full of uh, egg but snaffle bits because a lot of the bits they use are, are solid straight bar cast iron with spikes like you'd see. Like, you know, when you get those really aggressive rollers for your legs and stuff at the gym, mm. spikes like that across the central bar of the bit because they have a fascinate. They love it if the horse is unecked with an open mouth. Because they say it shows that he's very excitable. White eyes, you neck, open mouth. Great. Goodness. So we spent a lot of time, we were working near a lake on this film, and I spent a lot of time cutting bits off bridles, throwing them in the lake, and then saying, here's a nice snaffle (laughs) instead. Why don't we we try this? Uh, A lot of the time, the guys out there, the grooms, they weren't, there was no malice in anyone. That is one thing I must ever say. I never saw malice towards an animal from anyone out there, but I saw neglect through just not knowing fit how to fit a saddle, putting the pads on, washing them off properly, fitting a bit properly so that it. You know, sometimes you'd see bits where the horse looked like it was smiling like the Joker because it was so high, or other times you can hear it banging against the teeth. Simple things, just how to check. And when you told the guys once, they knew and they were great. But we had a few clashes at first. I mean, I say I never saw anyone do anything with malice. The first time I met my grooms, one of them was, they were feeding the hard feed to the horses and this horse kept popping his head over the door and shouting. And so the groom was hitting him on the front of the head with half a wooden broomstick. And so I turned around to my translator and said, tell that man if he hits that horse with that broomstick again, I'm going to hit him. Uh, And it was a rocky start, but when we when we got them explained to how we wanted them to go, you know, the horses looked better, the horses went better and, and they were, you know, they were all, all in for it. But. Yeah. I've, I've, I've wanted to go to, uh, to India probably for the, all the reasons you just said, you know, um, that, that'd be the part that I would have a trouble with is the, is, you know, like seeing the the poverty and yeah, that's got to be heartbreaking. I mean, we saw children who. So I had this. I had my guide who I would ask because there was only maybe about three or four of us who spoke English on the entire job. Um, and one night we're driving back to the hotel, and you can see children dragging thorn bushes, branches out of thorn bushes. And I said, "What are they doing? Is that to burn?" And he said, "No." They'll lay in a pile so they don't freeze and cover themselves with the thorns so the wild dogs don't attack them. The children lay in a pile. The children will lie in a pile so they don't freeze and they'll cover themselves in the thorn branches so that the wild dogs don't attack them. Wow. And, yeah, and then you're there swanning around on a... It was very, I mean... You just can't get your head around it around here, can you? 
I know that in my country, if someone, you know, if a child of eight or nine years old didn't get a new Xbox for Christmas, they'd consider themselves hard done by. Whereas you see that and you just think, well, what on earth? Did you find, though, you know, because I've been to a couple of third world countries, did you find that I found that the people have the least amount of stuff are the happiest? Oh, 10,000%. So I was feeling bad and I wanted to know what I could do. Um, And you might notice that I sound more nervous and silly when I'm talking about India than anything else. And it's probably because when I look back on it, as what I consider a grown man now, I'm ashamed that I did less to help other people. I was just so obsessed with what I was doing out there, which is a completely different topic. But so what one of the, one of the things I tried to do was to I thought, well, money the money exchange rate, money that our currency over there is so much, everything's so cheap. So I thought I'm gonna give my grooms a really big tip for the weekend and it'll be great. And I gave the tip to my grooms and they were really happy and they went off and I thought, oh, pat on my back. Good, good, Ben. And then come Monday morning, my interpreter's like, where are the grooms? Well, I'm like, I don't know. He says, you didn't tip the grooms, did you? And I'm like, yeah. I might have given them a bit of a bonus. And he said, they won't come back. He said, they know that it costs this amount for them to live the life that they like. So they're not going to come back until that money runs out. He said, they're not like you. You earn more money. Great. I need a bigger car. I need a, I need a bigger house. I need, you know, oh, I can buy designer clothes. So now I will. He said, they just don't think like that. It's not all about more, more, more. They know the life they want to live. And if they can afford to live it, they'll go sit on, you know, sit in the sun and enjoy living it. And to me, that was so profound. Such a simple, such a non-event in life or in the world or even on that job. But when you look at it in a deeper way, so moving, so awakening, because are we fall out? Are we addicted to the destination, or are we enjoying the ride along the way? Yeah, if you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. And if you're peaceful, you're living in the present. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Must have been. Um, how long were you there? Uh, I think th- three months, twice. I was out there for. And what did, what sorts of things were they having to do with horses? Oh, we had, so the first time I was out there, it was the most hilarious thing you've got. I mean, they should have filmed this as its own TV show. There's me, a prince from Rajasthan, who is our translator. Now, the reason we've got a prince is because we've got to go to stupid places. So we've got him. And this um, Aussie stunt coordinator, because you can't bring horses out of India because of the diseases they have. You can take horses in, but you can't bring them out. So when they said to me, we're going to do all this cool stuff, we've got our horses. We had to do work a Liberty horse to turn to, like to spins because it had to be have a CG lion on top of it, attacking it, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. But I was like, I'm not bringing my horses because I'm not leaving them in India. So the first two months were spent traveling around India, buying horses. I have never nearly got myself killed so many times arriving more towards the beginning because I turned up. I'm young. I'm, you know, I'm the man. I've not been decked in ages. Ride this. Yeah, whatever. I learned very quickly to be like, you ride it first. 
I mean, they they brought this one black stallion out and they're like, sir, sir, very good, very good. I'm like, you've got three blokes holding it and it's nearly going over backwards, rearing. I ain't getting on. He's like, you'll love him. So I, so I said, okay, you ride him and I'll get on him. Honestly, the moment this guy's backside hit the saddle, this horse just flipped over on him, done. So that was, and what would get you is, obviously I'm the horseman out there and I'm surrounded by people who don't, don't have horse logic. And so the director would be like, but this horse is perfect. We must have this horse. And I'm like, this horse will kill someone. And the only way one of the horses they wanted that was beautiful, I managed to not get on the film, is I had to get my agents back in England to write up this entire contract that basically said, when someone is damaged, maimed or killed by this horse on set, I am horse master. I am not liable. This is not my... F- I... I it basically, it was a full document saying this horse should not be on this film. And only when they saw that did they go, OK, you can choose a different horse. It will be fine. Um, so that was that was pretty crazy. And actually, it's one of the mainly I work with geldings and stallions just by it's because I always worked with stallions. And then it was easier to work with geldings with stallions than mares with stallions. But out there, um, people are mad for mares. Mares are the best thing in the world. Oh, really? Yeah, huge mare culture. And I think part of it is because, you know, if it if it breaks, you like in their minds, if a mare breaks, you can breed from her. Whereas if a stallion's, you know, he's no, he's no good. Um, so I had all my mares out there and they were, they were fantastic. And then we were, it's a balancing act because some of the horses had to work quite hard. And so for that, I wanted older horses, you know, like eight or nine years old, strong, good for that kind of work. But for all the liberty work, I got them to get me three and four year olds that preferably had done nothing. I wanted horses that people right. like you, you hadn't, I wanted, they weren't messed up already. Yeah. I want a three year old that's lived on the side of a mountain that they're like, but sir, no one can get near him. I'm like, uh, her. I'm like, yeah, perfect. Wrangle it into a round pen and then I can do what I need to, what I need to do. So that was, that was all pretty crazy. I mean, I've so many India stories. So India's got a fantastic thing with visas that I wish other countries kind of had as well. So they, the Indian film actually hired me because they saw me on a YouTube video. They saw a YouTube video and the director said, get that man to come to India to do this job. But you can't hire a foreign person if you don't hire a native person. So even if you don't use the native person out there, you still have to pay one. So that it's not native people aren't losing their jobs to foreigners, which is quite cool. I like the concept. But so they had this Indian horse master there and I was terrified of him. But also I just thought he was one of the it's just a caricature, caricature, just a walking caricature. So one of the scenes was this big tiger attack. It's at night um, and we're sat there and they say we need all the horses to spook, pull back and break their ropes and gallop off down the road. And I'm like, we've not rehearsed this. I've not been asked to train horses to do this. This was like thrown in out of nowhere. And the Indian horse guy's like, good, good. It's going to be good. And I'm thinking, oh, well, he obviously, him and his horses, he, because I had my mares that I trained and I kept them away from everyone else. And then they, they had the background horses from him. So he takes these 10 horses and ties them up. And he, and there's a water trough in front of them. And the water trough's empty. So it's a thing on a film set. And he sat behind the water trough. With this 12 ball shotgun, loading his shotgun. And I'm thinking, oh my, I'm like, no, 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 no. And sure as hell, action. And he just 
<laughs> lets off both barrels of this 12 bore as he's hid underneath where the horses are tied so they can't see. Bloody horses in every direction, pulling back. One of their ropes didn't break. I want to run in and help the horse that's stuck. The guys are holding me back with a rolling camera. Just chaos, just in any other place in the world. If you saw it with horses, you'd be like, what on earth's going on? Round of applause from the film crew, the directors, like, wow, best shot, fantastic. Yeah, and that was it. I'm just chaos, just we had to train. There was a scene where the horses had to gallop up to the palace. This prince is on a horse going to the palace. And for some reason, they wanted some elephants to be coming down the road while the horse came up. And so I knew from reading, uh, I quite like more history books with horses than just horse books. So probably my favorite book with horses is Xenophon's System of Horsemanship. Because I'm like, God, oh, not changed in 2000 years. That's brilliant. Um, and in that, they talk about how you can scare cavalry with elephants and if you can't get elephants get pigs because cavalry will often not go towards them so you can save your foot soldiers just by having that so i was like well i need to get my horses good with elephants so i asked around and they brought me the oldest polar pony deer world you've ever seen in the world it's a skeleton with no teeth because they treat the horses with when they give them like cookies they use pure sugar cane so this horse has got no teeth but this horse lives with an elephant so we used that horse to get my horses good with the elephants i didn't know that these weren't the elephants we were using on the day so they're like the horse is good with the elephants boss i'm like yeah, yeah great she'll be fine she doesn't care about elephants two elephants coming down this road they've not closed the road because they're like oh no the tourists look great it's a contemporary piece it's modern day so you've got a winding road going up to a castle it's maybe wide enough for two cars to just get past there are full of tourists. There are two elephants walking down it. And these two elephants see this little white horse cantering up the elephant. I've never seen anything spook so fast in my life. You won't believe the speed an elephant can spook for something so big. Elephants turn round. They clear off. The little guy's running behind him with his little stick tapping the elephant. And I'm like, I feel sorry for him because I'm like, hey, if a liberty horse runs off, it's not coming back. But if an elephant goes off, then yeah, the elephants were terrified of the horse and they stampeded. Luckily, no one got hurt and nothing. But so that chaos. that falls under the 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 jurisdiction of the elephant master, not the horse master. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just was. I was a nervous wreck. To be honest, I've probably never spoken to my parents more than when I went to India. They were like, <laughs> when I came back, they said you should go abroad more often because we speak to you more. Because every ten minutes. I was probably realistically probably on the first few weeks, probably every hour on the hour I was on the phone to my father being like, dad, I don't know what to do. I'm out of my depth. And he's like, you'll be fine. Just go slowly. Do this, do that. Um, yeah. What a life you've lived. That's amazing. Um, okay. So what else you got? You've got your, you've, what about your Liberty stuff? Where did all, where did all that come from? You know, like you, you've, cause I've seen footage of you with like a, a, well, how big is your team of Liberty horses now? So it depends. The team, if I was just going to say what the full team technically is, it's 10. But I'm only performing with a nine horse team at the moment because the 10th horse is just a baby and he's still learning the ropes. So mm. he does demos, but not shows. Yep. Um, but, but at the start of the first lockdown, I had a, a team of three. And now, now I've got a team of 10 because I've had a lot more time at home. So that's been. That's been lovely. 
So I'm interested in, so I'm, I'm imagine this would all follow the principles of training, but um, I imagine creating a team of nine or what, however many, you start out, you create a team of one, like you teach them all individually. Yeah. So and then you start pairing so them first up. Things, yeah. So first you've got to have a, you've got to make a Liberty horse. And I always stand by the first thing a horse has got to do is the horse has got to learn. Okay. Not first thing. First thing we've got to make sure the horse is trusting us enough that it can learn. And then they've got to learn how to learn. So I, for example, I'll always try and start with something really simple, like uh, a stride of Spanish walk, I think is always great for a lot of horses because they're getting to learn that, that hang on, you did a thing. I stomped my foot. You tell me I'm good. I could do more of this. This could work. It doesn't put the horse in a vulnerable position. The horse can stay very, do you know what I'm saying? It's the striking of the front leg. It's not like asking the horse to move over or bow, because I think sometimes you can you can get yourself in troubles with. I see a lot of styles of horsemanship where there's a a lot on the drive in the beginning. Drive this, drive that, send them round, and then they're like, "Oh, but the horse can't. You know, he doesn't stand still when he's near me." And you're like, "Well, I wonder why." We're <laughs> just driven and driven. Um, for me, if if you were going to boil it down. At the at the base of all my liberty training, I have what I call the three C's. So clarity, consistency equals confidence. So just to simplify it, it's clarity, be clear in your goal and how you ask for it. Consistency, consistently ask for the same movement or behavior in the same way. And then confidence. If you clearly ask for the same thing in the same way every time, then the horse becomes very confident that that's the correct answer. And but don't you think they become confident in you too? You know, like yeah, you know, like being being consistent about things. You are communicating your probably your consistency. You know, communicating your reliability. Yeah, yeah. So from the, from the three C's, that's where I'm very sort of similar to you. I have my idea of so. For, my idea of tools in the toolbox, because for me, horses are only going to run off at liberty if they feel overpressured. And if they feel overpressured, generally, it's because they don't understand. You know, if you ask someone, if you imagine it as a conversation between two people, if you ask something to someone in a reasonable manner, and it's a reasonable request, most reasonable people aren't going to freak out or disagree. Or if there are, you can have a conversation about it. If you go in, and you mumble what you say, then they can't hear you and they might get it wrong. If you are going and you're too aggressive, that person's just going to turn around and walk away from you because they don't want anything to do with what you've got to offer. And that's all very similar with horses. So to get the liberty to work, for me, you have to get that initial connection. And then from there, you're working on your tools in the toolbox. So for me, that's hindquarters away and towards from both sides and in front, shoulders around the hindquarters, away and towards from in both sides, the horse moving fully sideways away and towards from each side and in front, and the horse doing rein back and forwards from both sides and in front, and eventually from behind with the rein back as well. Now, the reason I have those basic skills that I like to put in is because 
there's not a lot that you can't communicate. Of course, from there, you build more subtle cues, more subtle conversations. So I, I try and always say to people when I'm teaching, you imagine the tools in the toolbox as I've just said them. Each one of them is a word. And it's a word in the language that you and your horse are building together. The more words you have in the language, the more complete the conversation you could have together. Because now when there's a moment of confusion or um, you know, a, a loss of connection between the two of you, if you have a way to interact, to act, that has clearly, clearly gives a signal, has always been the same for every sig every time you've done that movement or gesture or footstep or you know noise that you've always wanted that same movement or behavior the horse gets very good and very confident at giving it to you and and because then you have this flowing communication then the horse is going to choose to stay with you and trust you um above other things and that's in a nutshell my my liberty in a in a few words and so you get that with each of those horses and then do you start I imagine just simple maths you start two at a time and then three do you do depends you, depends depends so um if i'm starting a young horse and i've already got a trained older horse then i'll start them as a pair and during that training with the pair now using the, the the communication tools that we've built, I start to teach them to be team players. So teaching them that, for example, say I've got you know horse A and horse B, horse A is on the left, horse B is on the right. When we take a left-hand turn, horse A must slow down and step his shoulders away into the circle. Horse B must speed up and step slightly outwards in a bit of a shoulder in around the edge of the circle to move around the other horse. When we come level, we want our noses to stay level again when we're on a straight line again. Sounds like, put it like that, it's, it's impeccably simple. But teaching horses to start to think as a herd and work with each other and wait for each other to stay level. So we do a lot of work on the ground. Well, the first thing we would do is, is what we call it send away and recall, but you could call it join up. You know, in the round pen, send the horse out. When you whistle it, it comes in. And that's where we're going to start by building our positions in the team. Now, if you've got an existing team, then you kind of, because you've already done that individual work, you know the personalities of each horse, you know which horse is going to fit well where. What we start with, say, if we've got our, like we've said, horse A and horse B, we've got our older horse and our younger horse. I've going to have I'm going to know where I want the older horse to be in the team. So I'm going to teach the younger horse to go to whichever side I want it to go to with this particular horse. The sides and the order that the horse is going in the team stays consistent throughout all their training for me. So when we travel on the lorry to a show, they travel in the order. Oh, really? When they're in the, sta when they're in the stables, they're in order. Really? Um, and then what's hilarious is that if they're in the field and they get spooked, they go... <laughs> In order. In order. <laughs> like, this is where we go. This is this is what we do. So, yeah, and then we start by having our old horse parked in the middle. If he's a good liberty horse, you can park him in the middle of the round pen. 
if he's a younger horse or he doesn't know the job, just have a mate sit on top or stand and hold him. And we send each one round and call it in and do it in, take them in turns doing that and then eventually send both round and call them in. And that was the same as if you're doing two, three, four, ten, whatever, because at some point they're going to run off. Something's going to happen. One of them's going to kick another one out of chance. A kid's going to, I've had it before where a kid threw a balloon into the middle of my Liberty horses from the crowd line as we went along. We can prepare for most things, but not, you know, it just happens. Sometimes the horses go, oh, you've got to know that when those horses go off, you can stay there as the, so what I call it, the emotional anchor. We have to be the emotional anchor. So the horse can get spooked and go, oh, I'm, you know, this high, I'm crackers, I'm going to attack it. And we say, no. Where the anchor, I'm not coming up with you. I'm here. This is where you want to be. Come back down. Or if they get scared or nervous, we can't start to panic as well. You see it on people on trail rides. You know, flap, oh, doing this, doing that. Yep. No, you have to. We, we are the emotional anchor. No matter what happens, we stay level. We breathe. And, we, and you'll find, I'm sure you've had this at clinics and stuff as well, you'll be trying to work with someone with a horse and their horse is leaving them and coming to you because the person who's having the lesson is freaking out and you as the trainer are stood there very relaxed. And so the horse is like, I'm looking at, I'm reading the room. I'm on your team. You know where you're off. You know, it's funny. It happens a lot at clinics and horse experts. Someone's got a, you know, on the ground, they're holding on the horse and it's like flying a kite sort of a thing and has no interest in that particular human. And I'll say, okay, well, let me in the lead rope and I'll see what I can do. And I will walk up and that horse goes from like flying a kite to whoop, yeah. s- straight over to you. And it, ha- yeah, it happens. Well, it's been happening for quite a few years now, but it didn't used to. And that's the, that's the thing that really made me aware of this stuff is, is seeing the, the change in the horses you know, I used to have to take a hold of the lead rope and do something to get the change. And a lot of times those yeah. horses will, and, and so I, you know, it's that, I, I love it when it happens because I'll say, you know, that didn't used to happen. And so that's not, I, I'll tell people, I didn't just do something right then energetically or whatever. I didn't do anything to try to make that horse different. I just came over here. And so th- that's a good segue into you know like at clinics once people see that it's a good segue into you are the problem yeah you know what i mean not like not pointing the finger like you're the problem but you know our energy and our judgments and all that stuff how we show up is a huge part of this and it's always good if if people see that at the start at least get some and at least get some thinking about that you know i mean you can't you can't fix that stuff all of a sudden but you can make people aware that, oh my, how I show up. And, you know, like you said a minute ago, you've got to be the emotional anchor. And that, yeah. and I think, I mean, these days I'm really big on horses just being a conduit for people being better versions of themselves. It just happens to be horses is the thing that leads us there. But I think the great thing about horses is people are very passionate about them and will do whatever it takes to get along with their horses. And so, you know, you kind of, the horses are helping the people learn how to be that emotional anchor. And then you can be an emotional anchor for your husband and your wife and your kids and your, yeah. you know, and it, and it, it kind of branches out through humanity, basically. Yeah, I think it's such, such a strange 
journey to get people to see and involve themselves in because i think people that aren't people that are adamant that that's not something that's part of horsemanship are blue in the face to it but when you you say it's the same as your relationship with your wife or your friends or any, anyone like that i think if people could really view it like that to an extreme pedantic extent with their relationship with them and their them and their horse so for example if you've got a friend and every time you go out with him it's just the best time. Nothing bad ever happens. Whenever you get a phone call from them and they say, you know, you're coming out Friday night, you're going. You, it's going to be good fun. Everyone's going to have a good time. Whereas if you've got that friend that says, you know, you'll go for two beers and then they're squaring up to someone at the bar and then you lose them and it's stressful and it goes wrong. Or someone that turns up and they say, let's go out on Friday, but then they're not there and then they've not made a plan. You're not wanting to hang out with those people. And that's you to your horse. Are you the person that turns up and makes sure, like, we've got a plan, we're going here, here, and here, we're doing this, this, and this. When stuff goes wrong, you're laid back, it's all fine. If you're that person, you want to hang out with them. If you're that trainer, the horse wants to be with you. If you are panicked and stressed and you're bringing that energy to it, I always think if, if you imagine yourself as the tour guide and the horse is the tourist following you, how would you as the tourist feel with that tour guide? You want to be having a good time. You don't want a tour guide that's scared because then you're going to be scared. You don't want a tour guide that's losing their temper or doesn't know what they're talking about because you're going to say like, come on, let's leave. I'm not, I'm not staying for that. And that's, that's what we are. We're a guide. You are quite the guide. And I've just realized that we could talk for like six hours. I, I took you forever. <laughs> so we bet, I better, change tack here and get to some of these questions that that you've chosen for me to ask and some of these you may have especially this first one i think you may have already covered it but let's 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 go with them anyway so the first question you selected was what has been your biggest failure and how has it helped you partly definitely say the frederick clinic getting that dressing down mm. in front of people uh and the mainly for me the failures i've had while performing so definitely not enjoyable at the time i mean one of them was i was working for guido we got asked to audition for a, a big show for horse of the year show in this country and the lady who's the director said yeah i love the team i want you all apart from the kid apart from the boy he's not good enough he's not coming and when guido told me this I think I'd have been about 15 at the time and I was heartbroken. And he said, look, cause we're like family at this point. He said, if you don't, he says, if you're really upset, we'll turn it down. I said, no, don't be stupid. I said, you go. And one day I'm going to go back to that show on my own steam because that's, and that's what I'm going to do. And I can remember leaving that event and sitting and crying in the shower and being heartbroken, but I picked myself up, I put myself to the task. And now I've performed at Hoy's twice under my own steam, under my own name. And it was one of the best things that happened to me because it taught me that life isn't a fairy tale. Just because you get the audition doesn't mean you're going to get the part. And it gave me a much deeper respect from that moment from being so young when it happened as well. So that when I came across people like Frederick and other people I've come across in my life, critics, I've not brushed it off and said, well, they know nothing, or I've not tried to 
shirk it away. You lean into the you know, into the storm. Lean into the storm. It'll it'll help you grow. Yeah, there's something about there's something about you know, critics have almost got to figure out who to listen to and who not to, like. Yeah, yeah, like talking to someone like, say, Frederick, well, you listen to that. But I mean, like in the public space, you've got to be careful who you listen to and who you don't. But not everybody, I found that not everybody in the public space is a troll. Some people actually have some good information. And so, yeah, you know, um, I was getting off track there. Uh, didn't you, that was Horse of the Year show you were talking about? Yeah. Didn't you actually get engaged at that? No, we got engaged at the Great Yorkshire show. Ah, okay. That was the most scariest show of my life because of, well my liberty horses had my back imagine trying to i know i'm going to propose obviously she doesn't um how many, pe- how many people are at this thing oh my goodness twenty thousand thirty thousand <laughs> there's probably one hundred and fifty thousand at the show but just it depends who's watching yeah around the arena at the time and yeah, I was terrified. I'm just going around thinking, don't drop the ring. My Liberty team are on autopilot. You can tell, I could, looking back at some pictures and videos from the day I proposed, I can tell the horses are looking at me like, come on, man, at least be in the right place so you can pretend you've done the right thing. What are you doing? Um, and I'd come up with this entire convoluted plan where I made George, my fiance, I made her stand. I was like, right, I've changed what I'm doing with the Liberty horses, but I need a second schooling whip at this point. So I need you to stand here in the arena. And then when I need the whip, I'm going to beckon you over. So she's like, yeah, yeah, cool, whatever. I'd already had to come up with an entire lie to get her to the show because she's a farrier and she doesn't actually do the performances. And I was like, oh, I can't get a rider. I need someone to ride in the in the dressage section because she's a dressage rider as well. And she was like, look, I'm sure you can. So she's going on Facebook. And I've got my friends messaging me saying, mate, George has asked me to ride at the Yorkshire, but you told me that she's, and I'm like, she She is, tell her you're busy. (laughs) Like, she can't. So we managed to get her to the show. And then she stood there. I I do, and I promised myself I'd do the entire act first and then I could relax and then propose. So I've lined the team up, which she knows is the end of the show. So I'm stood there going, George, George the whip, George. And she stood in front of me going, the show's over. (laughs) You don't need the whip. Why? And I go, bring me the whip. Why? And then you're thinking, oh my goodness. And then eventually she came and it went well. And then I had um the the guys who worked for me came and grabbed all of the Liberty horses bar two. And then to celebrate like as our triumphant, we just got engaged. We jumped on two horses, bridleless, and raced each other bridleless around this arena to the for a lap of honor, which was pretty just a good way to start there. That's, that's or a marriage. That's pretty cool. You know, at clinics, I often, you know, I talk to people about with their horses about only asking yes questions. Okay. You know, or they need to know the answer before you ask the yeah. question. And I say the example I use is it's like, you know, men, when they ask a woman to marry them, they're pretty sure they're going to say yes. Yeah. No one gets down on one knee buys a ring, gets down on one knee, if they, they're not sure they're going to get a yes. I tell you what, it's <laughs> another level to buy a ring, get down on one knee in front of 20,000 people. You really got to oh, know they're going to say yes. Of course, all your family and friends and everyone knows, so they're all coming. Um, but she she didn't know I was going to propose then or there. She didn't know I was going to propose. 
but we'd had a conversation months before where someone had got married and I said, oh, how would you like me to propose? I was like, if we were going to get married, how should I propose? And George is actually quite a private person. So it really shocked me. She was like, I want the biggest proposal you can do. I want big, I want public, I want me and you everywhere. I was like, right, well, I guess I can do it. And I said to her then, I was like, the deal is I will give you the biggest proposal I can come up with, but you have to say yes. I was like, you can't say no as a joke. And then laugh and say yes. I was like, if I'm going to do this, you've got to say, you've got to play along. That's the that's the game. Oh, that sounds like a that sounds like a great proposal. Okay, next question here is: If you could spread a message around the world, what would that be? Okay, so this one is an odd one. There's sort of two sides to this. I think people need to be a lot more self-critical in the right ways so i don't mean self-critical as in you know it's not like whipping yourself with thorn branches because you're a bad person like, don't tear yourself to pieces don't be self-destructive there's a big difference between self-critical and self-destructive but be able to take a very realistic look at what's going on in life and see why it's happening and are you ready to pay the price for that so for me a great example for this is with uh, food and eating you know if you're if you're gaining weight you know you're eating too much food or you know what you're eating is wrong or you know you can you can look at that and figure it out pretty quick but it takes a level of self-honesty to get to there and that for me transfers with all of life and definitely into horse training you know be self-critical nitpick at the things that when it comes to horses especially with my passion for liberty it doesn't matter if you know where to touch the horse with the whip, but if you're handling with a whip, it's crap and you touch in the wrong spot. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're feeling, you know, if you arrive at the yard and you've been looking forward to working that horse at Liberty all day, but you've just had a fight with your partner in the phone in the car just before you arrived, change plans. You know, make decisions using all the information that's available. Don't stick your head in the sand because you've got a path that you think you're going to be on. And I think there's so many, just by looking inwards on ourselves, really looking at the cost of things in our lives. I don't mean, I don't mean financial cost. I mean, for example, like for me, I, I like to go to the gym on the morning, so I have to get up early to do it if I'm still going to fit work in. I have less sleep, but I get to do what I enjoy. It's the payoff. And then it makes me a better person during the day. Just looking at ourselves in that way and, and deciding where we, where we're willing to sacrifice to to experience growth in another area, and just being very honest about that. That was awesome. Next question: What is the most worthwhile thing you have put your time into? Malik, my dapple grey. The one who I went for the Frederick lessons with, the hardest horse to train on planet Earth. I stand by my guns with that one. Any other horse trainer can come and meet him. He has taught me more in all the world than absolutely anything else. Because he was a horse I was I was gifted him for my 18th birthday as a two-week-old colt. And so obviously in my mind, it's going to be a Disney film we're going to take on the world. I mean, we, we're doing all right. But he was just the trickiest. He's the most intelligent horse I've ever met in my life. 
And he made my life, which at the time I would have considered it a living hell because he was so difficult to do absolutely everything, but has made me the horseman that I am today in every single way. Taught me so many things. You couldn't get it slightly wrong. You had to be there. You had to be present. You had to be aware. And I guess that would lead me into the overall liberty, just the pursuing liberty to come up with a way that was simple and that worked, that didn't need to be bells and whistles. You don't need to do 12 years as an apprentice or buy seven books or, you know, it's simple. It's simple liberty that every horse and every person can enjoy. So that horse, Malik, helping me come up with my style and my method of working liberties, the the thing that's been most worthwhile in in my life. That is a great answer on a horsey kind of a podcast. Okay, next question is, and before I ask this question, it has the word profession in it. And sometimes it's hard with some of the guests on the podcast because a lot of times they don't have a profession that is a profession. It's not like a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, you know. But the question is, what's the worst advice you see given in your profession? Okay, so I chose this question, but I've got a bit of a weird sideways edge into the answer. Weird away. This is this is something that I really, really passionately feel about. And I think you see it more in the horse world than anything else. Why do we have a they are wrong, don't do that culture opposed to I do it this way and it really works, why don't you try? I find so many trainers, so many, even just riders, everybody wants to say, so the amount of trainers I follow on social media who I can't actually remember them ever posting anything that's positive. They never post a, why don't you try this? Mm -hmm. This is a method I really like. I always do this when I'm about to do X, Y, Z exercise. All they post is, don't know, Riding in a double bridle is abuse. You shouldn't ride in this. Don't do that. No, never do this. You you wouldn't try and teach a child or a horse something by just telling them off every time they did the wrong thing. You encourage and nurture towards the correct outcome. And I think it's such a toxic, weird, witch hunty way that we've seen it in the horse world, opposed to celebrating those who are good and sharing what works with each other, we're just all about pulling down people around us, and I, it drives me absolutely mental. Yeah, I'm not much of a fan of of that, especially, you know, the thing is if a lot of times people, or sometimes people are doing that because they, they actually want to help, and there is an actual better way of doing it. But telling yeah. someone else they're doing it wrong is never a way to encourage them to do it differently. It just alienates them from your opinion in the first place. I think um, I, I was in a, like a Western store or something over here a few years ago and there was a sign on the wall and it said, the best sermons are lived, not preached. And so, yeah. you know, I think, I think people who lead by example, who, who, you know, show a better way just by showing a better way without saying you're doing it wrong. But say so this is like, just like what you're saying, like, this is how I do it. Um, and there's, you never, I think you should never forget the, or never underestimate the power of planting a seed. 
You know what I mean? Like exposing somebody to, to something that's maybe a bit different than what they do, but not shoving it down their throat, but just planting the seed. And yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm totally all over you with that. I think that that's drives me nuts too. When people do that. Okay. Here we go. What do you do to relieve stress? And I think you might have exercise. <laughs> I'm definitely, a, do you know, that more old fashioned style of like system of horsemanship. That's like, do you know, to calm the mind, move the feet that like, obviously none of us really go after that anymore with horses, but with myself, that is, that is me. That is me down to uh if I was a horse, I would weave, I would box walk, I'd crib <laughs> all of it. Um, if I'm very stressed, then, well, I've already not, I've already said, I, I have to be lunged on a morning. I have to go to the gym every morning just uh, partly to have a bit of me time, but just do just lift heavy things, physical exertion, get the endorphins going, feel good, attack the day. But if I'm ever in a very dark place or I'm struggling with, you know, I have to come up with a, I have a problem with a horse or a, a, a personal problem with life. I just stick my running shoes on and I just go. And it could be a 5K, it could be a half marathon, could be a marathon, could be longer. Um, I just run until the problem seems to figure itself out. And it's almost like when I'm, because the running gives me something to do with the body, it's almost like I can have like, like a background. You know, like when you're doing one thing on the computer, but you've got a old something loading or downloading in the background, it's almost like by giving the body the fight or flight mechanism a thing to do it allows the adults in the brain to talk while the animals are just getting rid of that getting rid of that electric energy yeah you when we chatted the other day with, with the one that didn't work you you told me a running quote that i can't remember what it was but it was like if you if you want to speak to yourself run a mile if you need to speak to god run a marathon that's what it was yeah so it's that it's that, do you think that is like the pushing through the barriers and, you know? Definitely. Yeah. And it, and, and it can be to do with the chemical version of pushing through the barriers. So I know for myself personally, if I'm going on a long run, like say 20, 30K or longer, I'll normally feel a bit like, oh, I'm not sure I can do this until I get to about eight kilometers. I get seven, eight kilometers and then it's like the switch clicks. And I'm like, I could do this all day. I could just go and go. This isn't going to bother me. But equally, I think it's good for... So there are times when I've struggled with you know, bits of anxiety, bits of depression. And sometimes just by setting myself a goal, I'm going to leave that door and I'm going to run 20K or I'm going to run a marathon. Lockdown one, got my head in a real state. I'm going to run a marathon. I didn't know what to do. All the shows had cancelled. It was bad. Um, and the success of achieving that goal that day, I ran, I got up and I ran my marathon. And by the end of it, I'd also use that time to figure out I'm not going to sit and complain. I'm going to train these horses. I'm going to come out of this better than I've ever been. And partly, yeah, partly through the time to think, but partly through that, I feel like feeling like a failure, but then you actually set yourself a goal and, and knock it out of the park. And there's it's such a good feeling to just get you back on track. Nothing like a win. Yeah, it sounds like you tr you like to challenge yourself. 
Um, you told me the other day that when you go to the gym, you, you go to CrossFit. Yeah. Yeah, Robin and I have been to CrossFit a little bit, I think. You know, I was kind of scared of CrossFit initially because I've heard it's just crazy, killer. Injuries. You know, Well, not so much injuries, but just, you know, you, they make you work till you puke and that sort of thing. But when I went, I found it's just like horse training that they, you can <laughs> scale it down to a, find a good starting point yeah. and you build from there. There is like, there's ladies in there probably in their late sixties and yeah. you know, they might be just lifting a bar with no weights on it or, you know, whatever, but that you can take the exercise and you can break it down into a, 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 a good starting point and you build on that, build on that starting point. Something I wanted to comment on here. Um, so for that horseman showcase thing that we were on, it's a is it it's a UK based thing, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So thing, you yeah. know, like the poster they do for it. So all us clinicians, or whatever you want to call us, that are you know contributing to the thing. <laughs> there's all these you know, like there's a picture of me over here with a horse, and then there's a picture of maybe Tick Maynard over there, and someone else, <laughs> and right in the middle is this shirtless Ben Atkinson with his freaking six pack <laughs> uh, Liberty. Roman riding on these horses or something or other. Like, good on you, Ben, making us all look bad. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there have been a few. That I have to say that's probably one of the things that I I enjoy that. So I enjoy that I've done a lot of the topless photo shoots and stuff so that when I'm older, I can look back and be like, your dad used to look like this, even though I don't look like it now or whatever. But actually, it was a big thing for me because... I had two years ago, I had colic surgery, um, like myself. So I got all my guts twisted up and tried to kill me. Really? And it was pretty crap. Yeah, yeah. I had to have all my intestines. I had to have emergency surgery and get cut open from the bottom of my ribs to the top of my belt line and basically take it all out, unjumble the puzzle and then put it back in. They have no idea why it happens. It's just a rare phenomenon. Um, and so one of the reasons I, I'm quite happy with the topless pictures and stuff now is because... Now I've got myself a cracking good old scar down the down the middle, so it's quite. You're like, oh, yeah, they're still knocking about. Yeah, well, if I looked like you shirtless, you wouldn't ever find a picture of me with a shirt on. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've but then I do get, I do like my mum gets cross, and I've uh, I'm a little bit the same sometimes. I'm like, come on, there are better. There are pictures of me doing cooler stuff with horses with clothes on. Don't always choose a topless. Well, the thing, the thing about looking at that, and it's kind of like what I alluded to earlier on. Like you've got the there's the liberty stuff, then there's the trick riding stuff, then there's the stunt stuff, and then there's the dressage stuff, and then there's the yeah. you know the 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 stuff on the ground. And it's like that you could take a lifetime to to um, do all those things. And that picture of you on that horseman's showcase thing, I think, were you, yeah. were, did you have, were you Roman riding and had a team of horses? I'm just walking. I might have been. Oh, no, you might have been. I think I'm just walking in front of the six. Yeah. So you got, so that picture right there. So, you know, Ben's ripped and he's shirtless in this picture. But that picture tells me a lot. He has put in the time to train six Liberty horses. And at the same time, obviously exercised and worked. enough, worked enough, and I'm sure there's a lot of diet in that because I don't think you can get a six pack just by no, working out on its own. Of... You know, so it's just that picture. Just there's a lot of discipline. There's a lot of hard work in that picture. You know what I mean? That's when when I looked at that, I'm like, well, yeah, there's a lot to that. Yeah, I would say for me. 
I, I've all like I'd, I obviously I'd never judge anyone on their fitness or something, but I think it's a very good because I work out and I go to the gym and stuff. Guys more than girls, but they'll sometimes try and start a conversation. If you've mated someone, they'll tell you about what they work out with, and you know you talk about the gym and stuff. And because I've done it for so long, generally you can tell if someone's weaving you a tail. Because if someone's like, yeah, I work out these times a week and this is all I eat and I do that. And you they're like, well, you'd look different if you did. Mm. So why lie? Why? Like, you can't. It's one of the only things in. And that's one of the things that keeps me addicted to. I'm a big flow state person, like I've said already. I love the flow state from CrossFit. I love the flow state from running, from Liberty, Roman riding. Anything the way you'll have to be like in is is amazing. But I, I like that you can't cheat it you can't the same way that you can't buy a liberty horse and have it stay really good or a reining horse or a jumper or anything you can't buy a six-pack you've you can put the work in that's it have you ever read the book the rise of superman no you know it's all about the flow state it's all about the flow state um yeah that yeah that's that's the thing with with like i said with that picture just it just you know how you said you talk to people and they tell you how they work out and how they eat and you kind of look at them like, well, if you did, you look different. I, I find yeah. that with the horses. People can tell you all sorts <laughs> of stories about what they can do with their horse, but the horse tells you the truth. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging people, but, you know, just, you know, yeah. Just tell the truth. Yeah, the, the horse will tell me exactly what's going on. Okay, last question, and I'm, I love the fact you chose this question because we've already talked about this a bit but and you i think there's only been one podcast guest who has not chosen this question and that's that's cool because you made him answer it anyway i made him answer it anyway yeah and he was fine (laughs) with it but yeah this is cool because not everybody would want to discuss this but what's your relationship like with fear based based on the fact that you can you will on a galloping horse crawl under his belly and around and up the other side i'd i'd like to i'd like to know what the answer to this question is so why are you afraid? What makes you afraid? What could go wrong? So some fear is simply internal. So for example, could like being scared of walking up to ask a girl out in a bar. What's the worst that's going to happen? She's going to throw a drink over you, maybe slap you in the face. What's the best that happens? You go home with her. Worth risk reward. It's easy. It's just a push through it. It'll be fine. Fear. With the stuff that we do with the horses, it's a different type of fear. It's that I could get hurt. The horse could get hurt. And so for me, fear dies within two things. Fear dies within preparation and boredom. So first, so for example, a great example, the thing that terrified me the most about under the belly was getting smashed up and kicked about. You've got to get your head through as quickly as possible, because if you get hit in the back of the head, you get knocked out, you get dragged. And so what I'm doing with anything like that that scares me, I'm just drilling the technique in a physical thing, drill the technique again and again until it's built in clockwork. A different example of that of drilling technique is when I first started standing on there doing the Roman riding without the bridles. Like, it's terrifying. So I would, re- I would build up the courage to do each session when I was learning it. By first, I go, okay, cool. Can I stand on these two horses in bridles? 
They went, well, brilliant. Take it off the list. How are these horses working ridden bridleless? Well, I start my bridleless work from the floor anyway. So I do the liberty work, pre-flight checks, tick it all off. Then we jump on, ride them bridleless, tick it all off. Then when we get up there, we know we've got this fear inside us, but we can start to slowly, okay, I know that this works. I know that this cue works. I know I can steer them. I can stop them. It's all on me. I know I can do it with the bridles. It's no different. It's the same thing just without the bridles. And so I try and kill as much fear as possible through preparation, be as ready as possible. A bit like, have you seen the film Rush? Where they're the F1 drivers oh, and they yeah, sit yes. and they go through. So when I'm getting ready to perform, I will sit and I go through the show perfectly in my mind. And then I go through the show and I'm like, and when this, like, you know, we all know our horses, don't we? We know where it could go wrong, where it could. And so I play that in my mind. Okay, when I ask him to do that, he runs off. What do you do? How do you cope with it? How do we fix it? Don't lose the showmanship. Do this. And um, again, all that preparation all the time. And then when preparation comes to its end, my next thing is boredom. If you do something so often that it becomes boring, it can't scare you anymore. So one of the main things I did during that beginning of the lockdown, it was the middle of summer here. I was terrified. I'd done one year of performing Roman riding without bridles. And I hated how I looked when I did it because I was scared. And so through that entire first lockdown, I would stand on the floor without their bridles. I would set a timer on my phone that would go off in 30 minutes. And I had to trot around that field standing on those horses for 30 minutes. If I wanted to give the horses a walk and I wanted to get down, I had to get the phone out and I had to pause the timer. I had to do 30 minutes standing on those horses in trot until I was bored of it. And when I found myself getting bored, suddenly looking over in another field, what's going on there? humming a little tune while you're doing it. And then you go, I'm not scared. I'm not scared anymore. And that's how in my life with my horses and my career so, so far, how I attack fear, prepare as much as you can. And then whenever possible, do that thing repeatedly until it's boring because you can't be scared of something that you're bored of. Out of the, I don't know how many guests we've had, but we've had 60 something podcasts, but I, I, I like that answer to that question probably better than any of the others <laughs> so ben we probably should wrap this thing up we've been going for a while so how do people find out more about all things ben atkinson the best place to catch me is on instagram on ben underscore action horses and we are on facebook but we've had some major facebook problems so i think we'll be starting facebook again with a new page so please keep an eye out for that and yeah come and see how we train, we try, we post all our like training footage as well as what we're doing in films at night on shows. So yeah, come by, say hi. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I can tell from this conversation that there's so much, there's so much more to Ben Atkinson than we got out of here today, but I think that's a little taste of it. You know, you seem like an old soul, like you're 28, but that you're, You've got a mindset that maybe I'm just slow. Like it took me to, I was about 48 before I started even look at the world the way you do. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you're a bit of a, bit of a game changer as far as 
being a, like influencing people, you know, you do something that people are attracted to or interested in. They want to see it. They want to learn about and might necessarily learn how to do it because it's pretty hard, but people can definitely get excited about what you do. And I think, you know, you talking about like the mindset and thing that, that, that it takes to do things like that. I think that's, I think that's going to just help people maybe look at their own, the way they deal with things in their own life and uh, in doing so make the world a better place. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and thank you so much for doing what you do. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved every second. We'll have to do another one. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.